So this is um, the first of a series of uh, presentations I'll be making over the next week. Uh, As I mentioned last night, most of the material um, will be based on the handout that I emailed you. Um, And if you don't have a copy of that, there are now about 30 more sitting in the... Uh, entranceway out there so please take one of those when this is over if there is still not enough then we can always print more this morning I want to as it were uh, set a context uh, for these readings and reflections that we'll be doing through the week and that context is one that those of you who've been on these retreats before will have heard many times, and I realize nowadays that when you give a talk on a retreat, within a few days it's uh, available worldwide, and so I'm aware that people who may never have been on one of these retreats might have listened to dozens of talks. And so likewise, um, I'm going to acknowledge Uh, that wider, anonymous audience who may not be with us in this room today, but who will be listening in um, at some point in the future. So, hi, (laughs) all you out there. The approach that, um, uh, broadly speaking, I uh, follow is a secular one, a secular Buddhism, and I know that there are some people who find that term a bit disagreeable or jarring or they can't relate to it, and I don't think these labels really are actually terribly important, but they do give us a kind of a pointer. They give us a sense of a certain direction, a certain sort of framework of values uh, within which we explore the Dharma. And I think it's useful to be upfront as to uh, our backstory, as to where we're coming from, or what some of our deepest intuitions and, and beliefs might be, and how that frames our reading of texts and our uh, pursuing of an inquiry in our own practice, in our own meditation. Broadly speaking, uh, a secular approach to the Dharma is one that is primarily concerned with how to flourish as a human person uh, optimally in this world and to hold in abeyance metaphysical beliefs about what might happen after death metaphysical beliefs about the nature of some ultimate reality or truth, and to keep coming back uh, to the condition that we find ourselves in here and now. And by that I don't just mean how I'm feeling at five minutes past ten in Guy House this morning, 
although that's obviously part of it too, but also our wider awareness of where our lives have, have led us and brought us to in this moment, our broader awareness of the, the matrixes or the matrices of relationships that have informed us from our childhood through our adolescence, our adulthood, the impact of key figures in our lives, teachers, parents, partners, spouses, lovers, that have all, in a way, moved us a bit to the left, a bit to the right, a bit to the left, in ways that in some senses seem almost uh, arbitrary, but at another sense have become so deeply and personally our own that that is how we would now construe our life, who I am and what I value, what is meaningful for me, and how I relate to other people, to other forms of life. And I think nowadays, particularly, we are increasingly aware of how humanity and its behaviours are impacting the environment in which we live, the physical environment, the biosphere. And all of this, I feel, if we can sum it up at all, um, is our seculum, is, is the age and the world and the time where we find ourselves now. And I think it's important at the outset not to think of uh, what we'll be studying here as a kind of highly subjective, psychological interpretation of my innermost feelings and anxieties and, and joys. Um, but never to lose sight of the, the larger framework of life within which we are inevitably situated. Uh, such a secular approach to, uh, is somewhat suspicious of, um, of orthodoxy, in other words, uh, internally consistent and coherent bodies of ideas and beliefs and doctrines, which in many cases have been passed down, as far as we know, largely unchanged for hundreds of years, and to feel that to understand the Dharma, what the Buddha taught, means to somehow um, accept and to come to some internal uh, verification or validification of a particular Buddhist orthodoxy. I think one of the characteristics of our time is that um, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, um, we, are, we have lost trust in the authority of organized religion of whatever brand. And we seek an understanding of ourselves and our world um, that may be mediated and may be informed by different traditions. It may be that we primarily think of ourselves in terms of, of Buddhism. Well, that would be the case for, for myself. But that's just one option amongst many. But in, in, in many ways, we're seeking to somehow create and cultivate a path, a path both internally, 
within our relationships, within the wider world. And whatever can help us somehow uh, pursue those deepest uh, intuitions of what's right or what's true, uh, we need to value and honour and, uh, uh, and recognise that the help that they bring. So I think probably for many of us here, um, the very fact that we've come on this retreat rather than another suggests that we might be likewise um, you know, having as many questions and uncertainties in our practice as we do uh, convictions and beliefs. My own training, um, particularly in the Zen tradition, laid enormous emphasis on the centrality of doubt, what they call great doubt or great perplexity or puzzlement. And this has for me been uh, central to my own involvement with the Dharma from a very, uh, from a very beginning uh, when I was still quite young, a monk in Dharamsala in the 70s. That what struck me really was that the more that we uh, gain clarity or understanding about a particular topic or idea, at the same time that seems to open up an even larger space of uncertainty. Uh, a recognition that the, 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 the more penetrating and, and, and intimate is our understanding with ourselves and the world. At the same time, that intimacy opens up a deeper sense of the world's mystery. We become more and more acutely uh, aware of the limits of, of language, the limits of, of concepts. And I think many of us, even if we come from a fairly intellectual or even academic background, uh, find that meditation, just simple awareness practices, uh, allow us to become much more uh, at ease uh, with that mystery, with the sense that life in some level is just totally and utterly weird uh, and baffling and puzzling. And that's not a kind of uh, uh, anxiety-producing frustration, but rather a kind of access to what, uh, in the Romantic period, they called the sublime, uh, that experience that somehow stops thinking. Coleridge called it uh, the suspension of the act of comparison. There are certain experiences, and they can be very simple, present moment, being with the breath, in the body, uh, with the sounds around us. And, and we touch uh, a, a quality of experience that we simply can't adequately represent in concepts or words. And yet at the same time, as human creatures, we are only, in a sense, complete when we're able to articulate, verbalize, conceptualize, give voice, give form, give shape to what we are experiencing, always inadequately always somehow imperfectly. And it's that inadequacy and that imperfection that keeps us going in a way. 
I know this to be true very much as a writer. Um, when I'm involved in writing a book, uh, I find myself passionately engaged with a particular set of ideas or, or texts or material. Uh, and I really want to find a way to say that in as clear and as comprehensive a fashion as possible. But when I get to the end, after a, you know, that inevitable sense of relief and satisfaction has passed, usually within a few hours, then I just realize you know, how inadequate, in a sense, what I've just done is. But that inadequacy is not a sense of failure. It's a sense that I've somehow got to a point where I can now see the next project. Uh, the next book or whatever it might be, uh, dawning on, on that horizon. It's a bit like climbing in the mountains. You climb up a ridge and you just for hours see this one ridge and you get to the top and then you see there's a load more ridges. And life's a bit like that. Um, I'm rather suspicious of the notion of human perfection uh, that somehow we'll get to a state when we can just kind of pack up our bags and be happy or something. I suspect that we're always engaged in uh, an exploration into the next unknown. And the next unknown is really the next moment. So for this reason, um, I don't think of Buddhism as uh, focused on the attainment of nirvana. However you might understand nirvana will keep coming back to this. But um, in many of Buddhist uh, orthodox traditions, the goal is nirvana, to achieve some kind of sheer transcendence of the conditioned suffering world. I find it more helpful to think of nirvana not as the goal but in a strange sense as the starting point, uh, as the beginning. And what that, those moments we might call nirvana uh, allow is an opening to another set of possibilities, another way of responding to this life. And so in that sense... I find that what the Buddhists call the Eightfold Path, this way of life that engages all aspects of our humanity, uh, to be a more useful way of conceiving of what this practice is about. And in that sense, and again I'm borrowing here from, from Greek thought, the, the aim of philosophy, the aim of of Dharma practice is about uh, creating those conditions as best we can under which we can flourish optimally as persons. Uh, this approach is also one that is largely suspicious of the term truth with a capital T, metaphysical truth. And by that, um, I simply mean any kind of grandiose claim that can neither be proven nor disproven. 
Uh, that's what makes these kind of claims so seductive, is that uh, you can't disprove them. I can't prove that God doesn't exist. It's impossible. I can't demonstrate convincingly that after death there will be no uh, continuation of life. I can't, for the life of me, understand how that could be, but that is not adequate to saying, therefore, after death is just a blank hole or something. I just don't know. But the seductive power of metaphysical claims is they give us what appear to be certainties, that after death, such and such a thing will happen or won't happen, um, that the nature of reality, with a capital R, very often is, is mind or emptiness or Buddha nature or whatever you want to call it. And my own view, and I think this is supported quite um, well within the early Buddhist uh, teachings, is that all such uh, claims need to be treated with uh, a degree of suspicion. And in a sense, rather than getting worked up about these ideas and doctrines and beliefs, and I must confess, I do sometimes get worked up about them, but I feel that what the Buddha was doing was just saying, put that to one side. It's not going to help much. Uh, we can waste an enormous amount of time getting bogged down in these kinds of questions. And that really brings us to you know, the starting point uh, of all practice uh, within, within the, the sense of, of, of the Buddhist tradition. And that is the, um, the encounter with the suffering of life itself. That's the starting point, dukkha. An extraordinarily difficult word to translate. In fact, it might be better just to stop translating the word dukkha as suffering and just leave it as dukkha. Um, we have to remember that these teachings were given um, at a particular time in history, which was a hell of a long time ago, in the 5th century BC, where these words would have had meanings and resonances that I think are lost to us now. I think it's, it's unreasonable to expect that when we see the word dukkha and we think, oh, suffering, that we would have understood that as, say, uh, a monk or a nun at the Buddhist time would have done. We have no way of knowing. But I think we have to be quite careful in assuming uh, meanings that may be present to us, but may have little bearing as to how those terms were used in those early periods. I feel personally that one could almost substitute uh, for the word dukkha, uh, the word life. Uh, the, the Buddhist um, uh, project begins with being able to say, yes, this is the life I'm leading. This is life. This is what's happening. It may be painful, it may not be painful. That's almost a secondary consideration. I feel that nonetheless there is probably a certain uh, unavoidable sense of the tragic within our sense of life. 
because life is something that's impermanent. We're here now, but we may not be here in a year's time, we don't know. That there is a sense of entropy, of things running out, of things wearing down. And that is something we do need, I think, uh, if we're to pursue this kind of approach, uh, to take very seriously, to embrace, as it were. Another issue which we're going to probably be touching upon throughout the week is the tension between textual authority and the authority of reason and experience. And this is something that I personally struggle with most of the time. Um, As I mentioned last night, I I spend an awful lot of time uh, looking very closely at what seem to be the earliest records we have of what the Buddha and his followers may have said. And I'm not interested in that from a purely detached philological point of view. In other words, picking out the grammar and, and the syntax and the terminology and looking at the Sanskrit cognates. Um, that's useful to a point. But the reason that I'm constantly drawn back to these texts is because I find that um, they engage me in a conversation. I'm not interested in a kind of cold, objective, quasi-scientific understanding of Buddhism. Um, And for that reason, I've never been drawn into becoming a Buddhist academic in a university. Because I can't, um, I find it very difficult, let's say, uh, to sort of stand back and treat these texts uh, as just objective pieces of data. That they speak to me. Uh, and this, a lot of this has to do with the fact that I've spent my whole adult life, the last 40 years now, uh, engaged with this material. And I engage with it because it addresses the core concerns I have as to what it means to live a life as fully as possible. I find it helpful. I'm not interested in in claiming that it is the last word on anything. Uh, In fact, it may not be very helpful for many people. But in my own case, and perhaps with yours as well, uh, you're sharing this kind of conversation, this kind of dialogue that's going on. But of course, we can't just quote texts. Um, These texts are of value because they um, inspire reflection, they um, force us perhaps to to look at ourselves and the world from another perspective or another angle. And as we do that, that in turn changes maybe the quality of our inquiry. It changes what we uh, come to value most. And so when we go back to the same text and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, we see it from another perspective. And I think, as I mentioned last night, what what qualifies a text as as somehow having the status of a, a classical literature is that it bears repeated reading. You can keep going back to it, and as you 
digest and internalize and practice its precepts, you find that that process somehow allows layers of depth and nuance to come forth in subsequent readings of the same material. So in other words, the textual tradition allows us to both um, uh, expand, explore, um, heighten perhaps the quality of our sensory and, and mental life. It also engages us in a form of critical thinking. It often you know, presents us with ideas or images that are troubling, and difficult, and force us to rethink and reimagine what we're doing. And it's this total process of uh, reading, of reflection, of meditating, of being still, of being calm, of engaging in conversations, of living in communities, of working, that all of this together constitutes the, what we loosely call in Buddhism the practice. I think it's a great mistake to use the word practice just for denoting a particular spiritual exercise or technique that you might do on a regular basis. That's very important, at least I think for some of us. But that's not what the practice means in its broadest sense. So that hopefully gives you a a kind of sketch of of where I'm coming from and what I'm trying to do, both for myself and hopefully this will be of interest and of value to you as well. But the one thing that I do find perhaps most helpful um, is to frame what we're doing in the context of what can be called uh, the four tasks. And on the handout that um, I put on the table last night, there's a very single page um, which just gives a series of of terms, basically. Now, the four tasks are traditionally called the four truths or the four noble truths. And this is such a fundamental Buddhist doctrine that it's rarely um, sort of considered to be subject to any kind of questioning. That's just what Buddhism is basically about. But modern scholarship um, has shown that things are not as clear-cut as we might like to believe. And particularly... Um, it's been shown that in the, um, it, by an analysis of the Pali text of the, the Buddha's first discourse where the four noble truths are introduced that the word noble truth was actually added at a later date. Um, it, it's actually quite obvious when you look at it a little care, carefully um, that someone's, there's been some tampering going on. And I don't, I'm not going to get into the tech, technical arguments here, but 
the point is that the Buddha does not use the word truth in the way in which it's often used today, particularly in the context of, of religion or Buddhist practice, metaphysics. Truth with a capital T, as we might call it. Um, that, I think, was alien to the Buddha's uh, vision. I think it subsequently became very important to Buddhism. We have the four truths, we then have the two truths. Um, And as a dogmatic religion, like all dogmatic religions, um, it lays claim to somehow having accessed what is ultimately true. It's very well. It's very um, useful to recollect that there's nowhere in the early canon, preserved in Pali or in its Chinese equivalent, that the notion of, of of ultimate and relative truth occur. They're just not there, absent altogether. And there's not even any other language that is comparable. In other words, the Buddha just didn't didn't talk like that. He didn't uh, set up truth as somehow the, the goal of a practice. If you meditate long and hard enough, you'll realize the truth. You just can't say that in the early canon. It's just not there. Now this is troubling uh, for, uh, for, um, for many people who think of themselves as Buddhists because that's the language in which so much of Buddhism is framed. The four truths, the two truths, and so on. So, what I'll be doing, um, or what I'm doing now, in fact, uh, is to simply remove those terms altogether. This is not to say, however that uh, the Pali Canon doesn't contain the word truth. It does. I did a search recently through the Sangyutta Nikaya, which is one of the big collections in the Pali um, Canon. And I put in the word truth. And a few nanoseconds later, I got the answer 503 times does this word occur. But of those 503, about 470 or 480 were in the compound for noble truths. So if noble truth in the earliest text wasn't there, we can politely put that to one side. And this leaves us with about 20-odd occurrences of the word truth. And nearly all of them um, have to do with speaking honestly. Speaking truthfully. And in fact, a memory of that is contained in the Theravada doctrine of the paramis, the perfections. There are ten perfections. And one of them is satcha, truth. And what it means is being truthful, speaking honestly. But it has to do with an ethical practice rather than a metaphysical claim. In other words, if somebody asks you, where were you last night? And you say, oh, I was, um, I was going walking with the dog in the park, when in fact you were, you know, you were somewhere where you shouldn't have been, <laughs> then that's not speaking truthfully. 
So clearly, you know, the word truth is an integral part of our human discourse and is not to be somehow discarded altogether. But it's a practice in an ethical situation rather than a term that denotes some ultimate reality or the truth with a capital T. Happily, however, um, the first uh, discourse where the Buddha presents these ideas allows us another way of looking at this. And that is to think of what are called the four truths as four tasks. Now, if you look at the the handout here, um, you can see the four tasks. But before we get to that, we perhaps need to pay a little bit of attention to what um, we might just call the four. So four noble truths, four tasks. We're still dealing with four. Four things. And these four can become the basis for a theory of truth, but they can also be the basis for a philosophy of action. So what are these four? They are dukkha, suffering if you wish, samudaya, which means arising or uprising, Niroda, which means ceasing or stopping. And Maga, which means path. Now, I wonder if these four are not a bit like uh, the DNA of the Dharma. Uh, And conveniently, and again, I know nothing about biology, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But DNA apparently is formed of four nucleobases. Um, they're enzymes or something, or nucleic acids. I'm not, and I don't, I don't know what that means anyway. So. <laughs> but the, the point is that um, DNA is, in a sense, digital. Um, it has these four bases. And th- the whole of life, and this is really, I think, you know, quite mind-blowing, um, are basically complex configurations of those four bases, all living things, from a blade of grass to you and me. And I wonder if these four terms, dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, and the path, perhaps can be compared to that, that they're the sort of basic building blocks out of which the various configurations of Buddhism over the last two and a half thousand years in all these different Asian cultures um, have uh, been able to come about, have been able to arise and make sense and engage people according to their needs and their dispositions. One of the things that I feel is very useful to remember also is that Buddhism is... um, has shown itself to be highly flexible and adaptable to new cultural and historical environments. It's able to change shape. It's protean in that sense. 
Uh, Buddhist monks go to China. They find themselves talking with Taoist priests and Confucian literati. And out of that dialogue emerges another form, which we call Chinese Buddhism. But again, that is consisting of Zen, of Pure Land, of, of Huayen, and numerous schools. When monks end up going to Tibet in the 8th or 11th centuries, again, they encounter another culture, they engage in a dialogue, and out of that emerges what we now call Tibetan Buddhism. And this process, of course, is very much in keeping with what the Buddha considered to be the very, uh, you know, the very heart of his, his dispensation, which was that of conditioned arising, of dependent origination. The, 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 there are no essences in Buddhism. Buddhism is a non-essentialist way of thinking. It's concerned with conditions and circumstances and how when they come together they generate effects. And we're not apart from that. We are a similar kind of process ourselves. And I think this is reflected in the idea of these four. We start with the idea of dukkha, in other words, life. Again, when the Buddha defines it, it's birth, sickness, aging, death. That's the very first statement about dukkha. We're born, we're subject to sickness, we age, and at some point we disappear. Now again, this is not exactly you know, big news. We all know this. But the problem is that although we know it, have we internalized that knowledge and understanding to the point where it's really hit home? On Tuesday, I have to conduct a funeral uh, of a fellow I've known for many years who used to come regularly here. He's been on these retreats, but um, he died about two weeks ago. Now, that translates the idea of death into something rather more concrete, into Bill's death. And the, you know, the consequences of that with his family, with his friends, with his work, his colleagues. And when we are in the presence of mortality, when we attend a funeral of someone who's close to us, the whole um, reality of death hits home in a kind of visceral way, unless we're skillful enough at blocking out those feelings, um, where suddenly life appears to us in a new light, a new perspective. And the paradox with, 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 with awareness of death um, is rather than, as it were, inducing a kind of morbidity and gloom it actually wakes us up to the fact that we're alive. That unlike Bill, I can see and hear and smell and taste and touch and think and feel and talk. Things we take so much for granted that we actually don't really even notice these things much anymore. They just become things that are t around 
So the idea of dukkha um, is about, um, in a way, opening our eyes to the condition we are in. I mean, this was, I think, one of the reasons why I was so drawn when I was younger to existentialism, um, which, again, sometimes a little bit over, over you know, excited, I think. But nonetheless, it starts with the questions of our existence rather than questions of our essence, as Sartre put it. The existence precedes essence, which is a bit of a cliché. But the point is, I think it actually highlights a perspective and a way of doing philosophy uh, that is very much in conflict with the idea that philosophy is about finding what is the real nature of our life. But instead it's saying, pay attention to what is actually going on. And I think what Buddhist practice does is provide us with a methodology for paying attention to what is actually going on. We don't find such methodologies uh, so prominently in modern Western philosophy. So when dukkha um, is uh, considered as um, a truth, the noble truth of suffering, just by adding the word truth, you set it up as something to, uh, uh, to, to somehow be demonstrable or provable in a certain way. And this is usually articulated in the phrase, life is suffering or existence is suffering. And once you have started on that track, almost unavoidably, you will get drawn into a process of justification. Now, what I mean by that is that, you know, when you read in a book, you know, life is suffering, or as a Buddhist teacher, if you say life is suffering, existence is suffering, birth, sickness, aging, death is a terrible thing, you know. Um, the immediate response to being told that by a lot of people is, well, what do you mean? I can think of numerous occasions when I've been very happy. And life is joyful, and of course it is. The suffering, yeah, sure, but to say life is suffering. And so you start uh, engaging with that idea uh, as a kind of dispute. Is that, tr- is that statement true? Is that statement false? And frankly, I think this is just missing the point altogether. Ironically, Christians have an equal but opposite problem. They say, for example, that God is love. It's another another metaphysical statement. And the immediate response is, well, how can then, if God is love, can he tolerate starving children in sub-Saharan Africa? And you get on the same track. And in Christian theology, they call this theodicy, the justification of God. Although God is loving, there, has, there is suffering in the world and you get long, complicated explanations. And the Buddhists do the same, except they don't call it this, but it should be called dukkodasi, <laughs> the justification of suffering. Um, that even when you're happy, you know, you'll hear these Buddhists say, hmm, you're not really happy. 
<laughs> That's kind of fake happiness. Um, real happiness, of course, is happiness that Buddhists believe in. But the, the point I'm trying to make is as soon as you introduce the word truth, this is the kind of track you find yourself going down. Now, if instead of that, you see dukkha as the basis for a way of doing something, a task, everything changes. And we know from the, the sutta itself, the Buddha says suffering is to be fully known. That's the first task. And the word fully known is parinya. Nya is to know in Pali and Pari is an intensifier. Fully know. Fully know dukkha. So in other words, it's not about trying to prove that life is suffering or not. When you experience life, fully know it. When you experience pain, when you experience joy, when you experience aging and sickness, when you experience the death of a close friend, embrace that. Fully know it. In other words, it's something to do. It's not something to believe or disbelieve. The root of belief and disbelief just takes us into, into doctrine and metaphysics and theory, disconnected very often from actual experience. But here the challenge is to, is to reconsider your relationship with your life. How can I embrace this situation? Now one of the reasons it's so difficult to embrace much of our experience is because we're kind of conditioned uh, to react in certain habitual ways. Now this might be because of our, our neurobiology, which I suspect at some deep level it is. In other words, we're, we're creatures who are, have been very successful in surviving. And that survival is in a sense our primary, in a sense, drive. It's very close, I think, to the Buddhist word tangha craving or desire. And when we encounter suffering, life, rather than embracing it, we react to it. And this, I think, is what is meant by the second of the four, arising. Some stuff comes up, as they say in psychotherapy. You encounter a situation and immediately there is a reaction, whether it's a way of ideas or thoughts or words in your mind, whether it's a strong, visceral, emotional, gut reaction, that we react. And that reactivity is very often not remotely rational. It's often driven by deeper instincts, urges, fears. And it's very often that that drives our response to life um, rather than a more you know, uh, open-hearted, clear way, uh, way of, of being with what's going on. Our behavior is so often reactive. And when we come on a retreat like this, um, one of the things that's perhaps most challenging is to deal with and work with our reactivity. 
and we're just told to do something very simple, just to watch our breath. And yet, you know, after a few minutes of trying this out, we find that we're actually spending much more time getting caught up in our fantasies, our desires, our fears, our memories, our plans, all of the stuff that's arising, samudaya. It's rising up. It's triggered by our impact or contact with the world. Now, curiously, when, we, when this get, gets turned into a truth, the second noble truth, Samudhiya gets to be understood as origin or cause, which is really rather, it's a bit of a strain, actually. It's not what the word really means. And there are plenty of other words in Pali that do mean origin or cause, and this is not one of them, Samudhiya. I think we can see here there's been a bit of twisting of this term to get it to fit into a metaphysical theory, the origin of suffering. Again, very, very basic Buddhist idea. Now, what is the task that goes with the rising up of this habitual reactivity? The task is pahana, which means let go. In other words, don't let yourself get caught up in this stuff. It doesn't mean suppress it, deny it, pretend it's not happening. But it's allowing yourself to be totally with it, embracing it, but not being of it. Not allowing it to somehow dictate what you think and say and do. And simple meditation, as we're doing here, gives us a very immediate experience of that. That we can... Well, once the mind gets a bit stiller, a bit calmer, more open, we can begin just to be with this reactivity, yet not jumping on board and letting it somehow run the show. But we also know, rather uncomfortably sometimes, that the power of this reactivity can easily overwhelm all our good intentions. And we find ourselves almost powerless, it feels sometimes, to do much about this. And so it's not accidental, I think, that the Buddha called these the armies of Mara. <laughs> and he said, there's no, nothing so powerful in this world as the armies of Mara. That's what we're up against. So in other words, embracing the situation we're in, letting go... In other words, not identifying with, not getting caught up in the reactivity. This is the precondition that then leads to moments in which that reactivity sort of wears down and stops. So the niroda, the third of these four, this third task, um, this ceasing, it's not the ceasing of suffering, as is often taught. It's the ceasing of this reactivity. And it's in moments of such stopping and stillness and clarity that we can find another perspective from which to live our lives. And that is, goes under the term maga, path, way of life. The Eightfold Path, as I mentioned. 
Now, of course, what we're describing here are not four discrete actions that can be somehow cordoned off one from the other. We're describing a process. A process in which by embracing the situation we're in, that brings us into another relationship with life, a relationship that's less invested in getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't like. And that letting go, that, that honesty in a way, allows moments in which those reactions are suspended. It might be the reactions are still coming up, but we just don't buy into them anymore, which comes to much the same thing as they're not being effective any longer. And it's in those moments, maybe very brief glimpses, intuitions, epiphanies, that we open ourselves to the possibility of responding in another way, which is called right view, right thought, right speech. Right being the wrong translation. (laughs) The word summer really means something like whole or total or complete. We'll come back to that. I'm actually running out of time. In any case, um, this is the framework within which I'm going to be exploring the text that we'll be looking at over the next days. And as a very simple acronym to describe this process, um, I've come up with ELSA, which means embrace, let go, stop, and act. Embrace, let go, stop, and act. I found that very helpful to to, to think of of, of my practice in terms of those four uh, tasks, or let's say in terms of that fourfold process of, of living, which I think of as a sort of positive feedback loop. In other words, there is no final goal. There is no ultimate truth we're going to reach one day. Every moment in life is uh, a new situation to rise to and to seek to respond in a way that's more fulfilling, in which we're able to, in a sense, optimize how we think and speech and act in response to what's going on. So this afternoon we'll have a discussion period and we can by all means uh, explore some of these ideas further. But um, from then on I'm not going to go into this material uh, anymore and I'm going to be looking at these uh, other texts, um, many of which are actually very early examples of material in the Pali Canon. In other words... Um, trying to get back, in a way, as close as we can to what seem to be the origins of the tradition. Now, I'm going to say a few words about walking meditation. We have a 45-minute period now for walking, and obviously uh, the weather is very appropriate. And we can enjoy not only the walking, but also the experience of of nature outside. 
I know that many of you have done walking meditation, you have a practice that suits you and works for you, so please continue doing that. If you're new to walking meditation, or at least walking meditation in this kind of uh, vipassana type style, then I would go outside and select an area about 10 yards long, stand for a few minutes at one end and just connect with your um, groundedness on the earth, uh, feeling the uh, weight of your body, feeling the way the body is balanced, um, being conscious of the breeze against your skin, of the sun, its warmth, um, of the flickering shadows of the leaves, just being completely open to that experience. And then when you feel centered and grounded, then slowly just walking to the end of your little patch, turning round, coming back, much in the same way as you practice of paying attention here. In other words, being more in your body, being more attentive to Uh, the subtle shifts of sensation and mood uh, that rise and pass, being aware also of how you feel inside, whether you feel slightly gloomy or slightly uh, happy, whatever it might be, Uh, being aware of the thoughts, the commentary, but in all of that, trying to hold your experience in a wide, open accepting space. And if you get distracted, you just gently come back. And there's a number of reasons we do walking meditation, but one of them is to try to cultivate a continuity between the sitting and the formal meditations in this room and your life, as it were, in the world. Walking meditation is a kind of a halfway house, a place where you can begin to explore meditation and meditative awareness in a non-formal sitting posture. And I think this is very important because when we leave here, we're not going to have this incredibly supportive schedule and teachings and all this kind of thing, but we're going to be on our own and we're going to have to try to internalize and integrate Uh, these practices, if we find them of value, um, in the contexts which are much more challenging and noisy and busy and so on. So, using the walking as a way to bring the meditation into a different physical posture, into a different environment, into a different frame, not getting frustrated if you find it difficult, um, just Gently coming back. If you want, sit down for a bit. Have a cup of tea. But in all of these activities, trying to keep the constancy of, uh, of attention. And if you like, reminding yourself to embrace what's going on, to let go of what rises up. And if we experience moments in which we become very still and quiet, then positively valorizing those experiences. 
The third task is to experience the stopping. And that means to say, yes, it's possible not to be caught up in this stuff that's coming up. So you need to sort of make a conscious affirmation of that experience. And that, though, is not a a goal or an end in itself, but the ground or the basis from which we can then act and respond. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.